Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So thank you guys so much for coming. It's a little weird to have the microphone. Not used to that, but it's good because you're my friend, so the first stop is nice. They might not be as nice in Minneapolis on Monday, you know, when I get there. Um, but I am going to just um, read a little bit for you guys so that you guys get a sense of the opening of the book. Um, I thought maybe I would read a later section, but this is kind of a difficult book because it is from four different people's perspectives over three generations. So cutting into the middle of it sort of it gives away everything that you could possibly know. So I thought this one's probably a great one to start just from the beginning and be simple about. Um, I just have to take a minute because it's really wonderful to see you guys here. And I have an old student from my very first time teaching at Penn State. Um, and she seems to think I was OK at it, which is great because I literally had a friend had to like push me in that room because I was so embarrassed about teaching. And I was so self-conscious. And I thought I was wearing like weird teacher pants. And, and she says I was wearing weird teacher shoes, but they, they were able to, to live with it. Yeah, they, they were. They were okay with the rest of it. <laughs> they let it go. Um, and then my friends from UMass and Amherst are here. Um, old friends from St. Louis are here. It's just a really wonderful time to see all my new friends, too, from L.A. And um, this night really couldn't be possible without my friend Anne, who does everything for me. And she's probably one of the most generous people I know and she's kind and she helped me lug all of this stuff across town and helped me go buy all of it and told, tells me what the right kinds of cheeses for you to eat are and <laughs> um, and she's lovely and my friends Grace and Marco I'm just really happy you guys are all here um, so thank you so much for coming and I will get started so I'm just gonna read maybe about 10 minutes so you get a sense of the book without it being sort of ruined for you <laughs> by too much. And then hopefully we can just have some wine. Those who came late and didn't get wine, I'm sorry for you. You can come up again at any time. Um, and then just mingle a little bit um, because I haven't seen you all in so long. It'd be really nice to catch up. So this is the book. It's evergreen and um, the person who designed the book, I think, was really brilliant about the design. When you kind of have a book published, you as an author have no control over what the cover will look like. Or depending on the publisher, they'll say you get one veto. And it has to be like a really bad, like, oh, I can't live with this. Because you make waves in publishing, and then they don't want to promote the book. And there's some hardships for the poor writer who's just like, but it didn't represent the book. So this one, um, she had been given nothing to go on. She just read the book. And this is what she came up with and did these really cool woodblock prints and did it all on her own. She, you know, They contract out now. They're not 
at the actual publishing houses, but I thought this really was a brilliant sort of capturing of the book. So I was just at another conference and I wanted, I was tempted to like not even give a reading at all and just say, this is everything the book is about. <laughs> like, just go for it. If this interests you in any way, you will be interested in the book. And there are cute little trees on the back, so I can't sort of resist that quality as well. Um, so she's not here tonight because she lives in New York, but very many thanks to the designer and everyone um, who does put a lot of work into it. Because I think when you feel it, you'll see it's like it's all embossed and it's creamy and very pretty. So I, I'm not responsible for that. That's why I can boast about it just a little bit. Um, all right, so this is chapter one. And it's a character named Eveline, and she's very young, and she's getting ready to go off and meet her husband in the wilderness. And they're in northern Minnesota. They're, she's been living in like sort of the last frontier town. It's 1938, and she's taken this risk. Her husband wants to open a taxidermy shop in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and he's a German immigrant. People don't really like him at this stage yet either. They, they won't like him for a number of years after this because of the war. Um, but she's kind of committed to a bit of a different life. And she's just arriving in the town called Evergreen, which at this point in the book isn't a town. It isn't anything. It's just a place full of trees. Um, and of course, they're evergreens. <laughs> so this is the opening. Eveline LeMay came after the water. She arrived on a cool morning in early September, asleep in a rowboat without paddles, as if she knew the river currents would carry her past the tamarack and black spruce forest, around Bone Island, a fen and a bog, all the way to Evergreen and her new husband, Emil, who was waiting for her on the rocky shore. The flood had delayed Eveline's trip north two months and forced her to travel by boat since the dirt roads had been washed away and no plans were made to restore them. Emil had sent word for her via the Forest Service to stay with her parents in Yellow Falls, a lumber town 20 miles south of Evergreen, until the water receded because he was living on the roof of their cabin, subsisting on whatever happened to float by. The newspapers blamed the flood on nature, but everyone knew the government had been building a dam to harness the power of the Snake and Owl Rivers in order to, in their words, bring light to all that was dark, but in everyone else's to build a paper mill and clear-cut the forests. <laughs> uh, my darling, Emile said, and Eveline opened her gray eyes. I lost the paddle, she said, sitting up in the rowboat, stiff from floating all night. On either side of the river, a forest of towering white pines shaded the shore. When the wind blew, long green needles fell onto the water like rain. Emile lifted her out of the boat as if she were a child and waved away a mosquito from her face. My poor baby, he said, kissing her, but you're here now, you're home. For the first time in two days, Eveline felt warm again despite her thin cotton dress which she chose because Emil said the daisy pattern reminded him of the meadows in Germany where he played as a boy. She'd pinned up her long, wheat-colored hair into a bun and let a few strands fall loosely around her face. Until she fell asleep, she'd pinched her cheeks every few hours to give them the rosy color Emil admired when they first met. In praise of youth, he'd said. Emile was ten years her senior, gray at the temples, which made him look both dignified and a little rueful. His shoulders were broad and strong from working outside, which belied the stiffness in his chest he called winter in the heart. 
They're boots, he said now, handing Eveline a pair of black rubber waders that rose to her thighs. The country's all mud. And the cabin, Eveline said, struggling with them. I stopped living on the roof three weeks ago, Emile said. They're not like stockings. You won't break them if you pull harder. Once she secured the waders, Eveline took Emile's hand, and the two of them walked up the rocky riverbank into the woods, which were alive with the hum of mosquitoes and groaning tree trunks. Emile sat down pine boards for her to walk on in the places where the mud gurgled and spit sulfur. Where he didn't set down boards, the mud came up to her ankles, and in one place her calves. At least the water came before the government did, Emile said. He pointed to a stand of old-growth pine trees the flood had uprooted and tossed like matchsticks onto their sides. It'll make good firewood. Do we have a fireplace, Eveline said. A wood stove, said Emile. Electricity? A year or two yet. I'm working on running water. Eveline had agreed to move to Evergreen because she wanted to be wherever Emile was, and Emile wanted to open a taxidermy shop on the edge of the wilderness, like his father and his father's father back in the Black Forest. Eveline's mother had yielded similarly when she was 19 and agreed to marry Eveline's father and live above the laundromat, despite her allergy to heavy detergents. Every afternoon, for as long as Eveline could remember, her mother would sit in a spearmint oil bath to clear, to clear her sinuses, but she'd always be ready to greet her father with a kiss when he came home from the lumber yard, which made Eveline confident about her decision to marry Emile and move to Evergreen. Before Emile proposed to her, Eveline worked at Harvey Smalls, the only restaurant in, in Yellow Falls, serving plates of hamburgers to lumberjacks to relieve some of her family's financial burdens. After her shift, she'd go across the street to Lenora's Fine Gowns, the place she'd met Emile, to brush against china silk and French chiffon, party dresses too fine for Northwood's parties. The dress shop was tucked between a live bait stall and the hunting emporium where camouflage jackets and buck knives hung from strands of twine in the front window. Eveline would circle the shop, reliving the moment when Emile had walked by, saw her twirling before a mirror, and was drawn to her side. After that, she'd go home to wash the scent of bacon fat out of her hair and freshen her skin with lemon juice. Coming into the country meant Eveline no longer had to work in the restaurant where children poured milkshakes onto the seats and stray dogs circled out back for bits of gristle, but it also meant she and Emile would have to eke out sustenance from the hard northern landscape and whatever supplies Emile had salvaged from the flood. Eveline was nervous about her instinct for survival, but she trusted Emile's completely. Emile had survived war as a boy and yet wasn't hardened. Eveline thought of his butterfly collection, the delicate purple emperor he gave her the day they met, and squeezed his hand. Around them, great pines lay like injured soldiers, sap streaming from their bark like blood. I pack too many dresses, Eveline said, surprised at how the modest silver band on her ring finger had made her lose sense of the place she was packing for. She tucked a pair of dancing shoes into her suitcase at the last minute. You won't always have to wear waders, Emile said. There's something else, Eveline thought, but couldn't say in the middle of all this death. 
Before Emil decided to move them north, they shared their childhood bedroom in the apartment above the laundromat and had only twice been daring enough to move together as man and wife, but it had been enough for life to begin inside of her. Her mother didn't speak of her condition, but each morning she brought Eveline a cup of herbal tea with a spoonful of honey. She let out the seams of Eveline's clothes and found an oversized winter coat for her at the secondhand shop. Mom, Eveline had said the morning before she left for Evergreen, when her mother passed by the threshold of her bedroom door. But the question Eveline wanted to ask her mother she couldn't find the tongue for, because even though her mother seemed cheerful enough and complained little, over the years her face had become weighed down by something Eveline recognized but didn't yet understand. Are you happy, Eveline had thought. Emil let go of Eveline's hand when they got to a clearing in the forest, and the mud gave way to bright green moss, then switched grass that rose to her thighs. It's not much farther, he said, tossing aside a dead weasel so Eveline wouldn't have to step over it. Everything's been displaced. Eveline wondered if Emil meant perished. Sometimes he used words that meant something different than they did to Eveline. When he asked her to marry him, he'd said, in case we're separated, which Eveline took to mean, so we won't ever be separate. The two walked through the thigh-high grass over fallen branches that snapped beneath their feet and spongy earth that gave beneath them, Emil with a hand in his trouser pocket and the other wrapped around the handle of Eveline's tweed suitcase. Overhead, the clouds lumped together until Eveline couldn't discern their shapes individually anymore. The air smelled of wet earth, oxide daisies and milkweed thistle, which grew in the back lot outside her bedroom window in Yellow Falls, gradually took the place of the switchgrass and made Eveline feel more sure of herself. What a good spot for a garden in the spring, she thought. My first real garden. In place of the milk thistle, which scratched at her waders like fingernails, she imagined everything from pumpkins to malva flowers, maybe even a row of walnut saplings, which would grow up with their child. When Eveline was a baby, her mother planted a forsythia shrub behind the laundromat, so Eveline would be the first one in town to glimpse spring in its bright yellow petals. Eveline looked up at the clouds. Do you think it's going to rain today? Only if you wish it to, my wife, Emile said. I've been practicing saying that. The wife part or the lying part? <laughs> Emile smiled. Both. Emil, Eveline said, but before she could finish her thought, the cabin rose out of the tangle of milk thistle in front of them like the prow of a ship on a wave. For a brief, stark moment, Eveline saw her future in the black water stains that licked the brown logs, in the boarded-up window Emil had yet to fix because he'd have to float a pane of glass 20 miles up the river. She saw it in the mud bubbling out from beneath the porch steps and the yellow liquid oozing like from the chinking between the logs. And yet, on the porch were two rocking chairs Emil had built and an evergreen wreath decorated with winter berries. A white-throated sparrow, what her father called a fortune bird, sat on the perch of a bright red birdhouse that hung from the eaves. Emil set down her suitcase. What is it? Eveline placed a hand on her stomach, a future that nudged her through the sunny material of her dress. I'm pregnant. The first chapter. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you guys so much. It's um, very nice to look at friendly faces while you do these things. Sometimes people can look a little grumpy at you, like I'm not approving. It changes things for you. So thank you for your smiling, wonderful, supportive faces. I appreciate that. I think some of my friends haven't been to book readings before. This is the requisite. If you have a question, you can ask one, but there's always usually like a minute of an awkward silence, like, can I come up with a question? Does she expect a question? What will happen if I don't ask a question? But if you have one, I'm happy to answer. <laughs> well, like, how long did it take you to write this book? I mean, spanning all those years, those generations, it must have taken it, it seemed like it took generations. <laughs> um, you know, it, it initially was a whole different book um, in a totally different sort of way. It was only two sections, and you were with me when it was partway. Scott was with us when it was partway. Stella, now it's evergreen, which is a better thing. Um, but it probably took a couple of years altogether. Of, but, but very sad things happened in the writing of it. Like, uh, it was so stressful because I was trying to rewrite the whole book it's expensive in LA, we need money to live. <laughs> so I'm writing and writing and writing. Uh, I think I got shingles during that time. I got pityriasis. If you don't know what that is, that's cool. It's benign, I'm totally fine, you can be around me. <laughs> uh, you know, lots of exciting things happened. My, everyone was very happy once we got the book deal. They're like, it was all worth it, I think. I think is what they say, but. So a couple of years, which seems like not that long, but when you understand the publishing industry, it's just sort of a, a terrible, terrible thing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, sweetie. Way to go, husband. I'm curious about the idea for the book. Are these based on family or people you know or purely out of your imagination? I think sort of, well, I mean, I don't know if anything maybe is purely out of my imagination, probably because I, I don't want to claim that for myself. But um, yeah, I mean, it's purely out of it. I think um, when I was in graduate school in Massachusetts, I was writing a story about a taxidermist. I don't know why. They're like, the, what does a taxidermist do? That's kind of interesting. Um, but that's after I was at Penn State, and I went on, I was in a nonfiction writing class, and he took us to do a profile piece of a guy who ran like a hunting store and I started to think about that guy like this is really weird like what compels you to do this in this day and age like in the middle of this little Pennsylvania town um, so maybe it comes like there are little things from life and then probably I just latch on to the things that interest me and the things that interest me tend to be like outlying people who aren't just like your average like I'm in LA trying to get to the next stop I don't tend to do that I tend to love um, stories that almost couldn't take place anywhere else they are because they're so unique and so small and so sort of obscure in some ways. And did it involve a lot of research? No, I'm surprisingly not a strong researcher. Uh, I had to do a few things like, what do they have in 1938, you know? But again, you're in the wilderness, so they have nothing. That is your answer. You know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was good enough for me. So now I'm actually writing one in present day, and it's a little confusing. Like, there's cell phones in there. Ah, ah. I can't tell if I love that or if that's scary to me. <laughs> so, but it's good. No more historical right now. We're good. Moving on. But, yeah. Should we eat, drink, and be merry? Okay, I can't wait to see some of you guys. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.